Welcome to Spectrum Sundays. I am Megan Sinisi, a Master of Health Science candidate studying to practice as a pediatric speech-language pathologist. I am also Miss Central Pennsylvania and the founder of a nonprofit organization for autism titled From a New Perspective. And I am Francesca D'Alessandro, a current master's student at University of Buffalo studying speech-language pathology. Additionally, I am your Miss Thousand Islands of New York State, serving my community through AAA Appreciation and Awareness for Autism. Everyone deserves to feel accepted and included in every space they walk in. Our series aims to inspire you to advocate for yourself and on behalf of your loved ones, and we are so grateful that you're here with us today. Lauren Melissa, known across social media as AutiNL, is an, an autistic advocate and social justice influencer. Leveraging her BA in creative writing and MS in library and information sciences, she seeks to cultivate awareness and acceptance for the actually autistic community through neurodiversity activism. Her advocacy work has been featured on several blogs, podcasts, and events, including Neuroclastic, BBC Minute, Healthline, Glamour UK, and Inclusion Festival. Even more, she actively engages in dialogue across lines of difference, highlighting the inequitable systems that oppress queer and Black Indigenous people of color, or BIPOC communities. Through Instagram, Lauren Melissa addresses everyday coping strategies for autistics by answering questions through something she calls Auti Tips. In this way, she hopes to co-create a society where autistics nurture autistics as we strive to against ableism toward a destination of true inclusion. So Lauren, thank you so much for being back with us today. We had such an informative and knowledgeable conversation with you a few weeks ago. So we're excited to get to know you a little bit more and what, what makes you who you are and some of your interests. So to start, um, you talked with us before about your favorite band being BTS and that you love to travel. So could you talk a little bit about those interests and also maybe some of the other hobbies that you like to do in your free time? Yes, my special interest is definitely the music group BTS. They've been my special interest for maybe a few years now. And I just love their music and how they connect people from all over the world because like you mentioned, I do also love traveling and I love to just see other places in the world. And I think one of the things that I love about traveling is that when I travel, I really get to just be myself because I'm in different contexts. And so whenever maybe I act or behave or, or just employ myself in a way that seems a little different from what would in the United States be perceived as the norm, when I'm traveling, people usually just chalk it up to me being a foreigner. So it's a fun way to live my life and just be me and enjoy, enjoy new places and learning new things about different ways of perceiving the world and navigating the world. Um, okay, so before we have talked about how you have multiple degrees, you have a BA in creative writing and a master's degree in library and information science. So we know that you've been largely successful in completing your uh, college journey. And we've heard from other self-advocates that this process of going to college and completing a just one degree alone can be very challenging. Um, so could you share maybe what your journey was like and maybe some uh, types of support that you had during your collegiate process? When I was pursuing my undergrad degree, I did not yet have an autism diagnosis. 
And so I did not receive any supports for autism spectrum disorder during that time. It was very difficult, I have to say, navigating these social dynamics of college, living on campus, making and maintaining friends. All of that was very difficult. And I made what's often referred to as a lot of social mistakes. I lost a lot of friends. And I think when people think of college, they don't think about bullying, they think that ends, but I was bullied in undergrad as well. It was a very socially difficult time in my life. Academically, it was a wonderful time. I got along very well with my professors. I got to study my special interests. I, I really just enjoyed it and I had an amazing time academically. What I ended up doing in the end was taking my academics and using it to get out of the social situation by graduating early. So I kind of cut it short so that way I could protect myself and my emotions. I wish that I could say that at the end of it, you know, that I had received support socially and, and that it hadn't been difficult, but I think in all, it was a learning experience. And it also set me up to continue looking for what was going on. I started pursuing my autism diagnosis about a year after undergrad. So I think that my undergrad experience really helped inform me that there was something different. There was something divergent about me and that it would be helpful to pursue what that was so I could receive the support that I truly needed. On the flip side, when I finally did decide to pursue my master's, I learned from that experience undergrad, which was that academics were fun and important to me, especially when they involved my special interests and that socializing in college was a more difficult aspect. So what I ended up doing was waiting a while to figure out what I really wanted to get my master's in. And then once I got that special thing that I knew I would really be able to hyper-focus on and be passionate about, I pursued an academically rigorous program that was remote. Mm -hmm. So this was pre-COVID and I chose online learning <laughs> and it was the best thing I could have done. I really enjoyed my program. I enjoyed everything about it. I enjoyed talking to my professors and learning the content. And I got to bypass a lot of the person-to-person -person interaction that could come with an on-campus learning experience. Yeah, we're really glad to hear that through, even though it was a challenging process, in the end, you did find out exactly what it is that you need and you were able to go forward without um, reservation because your undergrad was more challenging than you had expected or that anyone would have wanted. And it's really unfortunate to hear that that is the case and that undergraduate programs and college campuses aren't more aware of how to support people that are neurodivergent. So that's important for us going forward to think about what can we talk to college campuses about to make it more inclusive? And then also to to notice when people are struggling maybe a little bit sooner and to have a plan of action whenever that whenever that does come about because as we know so many people with autism go through much of their life without having a diagnosis or a proper answer to some of the things that they struggle with um, so that's kind of what we wanted to ask about next is this late diagnosis that you received we've talked to a few self-advocates who have had a very similar experience so you mentioned a little bit about when that happened for you and when you received an official diagnosis, but what was the process like um, 
from the time that you started recognizing some things and then what it was like getting the diagnosis and then following afterwards? My diagnosis journey was very long and twisty because obviously it started from the very beginning, right? From my journey began when I was very little and my mom actually wondered if I was on the spectrum, but she decided not to pursue it because I was doing well in school. And since I wasn't struggling in school, she decided that she wouldn't pursue a diagnosis, even though I had a lot of the social traits. And she never even told me, so I had no idea. And then my mind, I knew that I was socially struggling, but when it was in elementary school, I thought, oh, it's just because I am having family issues at home. In middle school, I thought, oh, it's just this school. I changed schools. So then I thought, oh, it's just the culture of high school. That's why I'm struggling. They'll be better when I'm in college and everybody's there to learn together. I go to college, same story, struggling socially. And just, I started to really believe that I was broken and that the problem was me because in every context it was existing. But I thought, okay, I'm going to finish college and it's going to be different once I'm in the workplace. So I go to the workplace and once again, I wound up in some very difficult social situations. To be more specific, this the situation that made me decide to pursue an autism diagnosis in the end was with a colleague of mine who was new to the role that I was in. She was moving into that same role alongside me. And I was trying to be a helping hand and support her in her transition. Somehow, everything that I did to be helpful and kind and welcoming she interpreted as arrogance, rude, cold-hearted, the complete opposite of what I was trying to do. And we had a very big blow-up and I ended up having to be navigated through meetings with my supervisor. And I thought to myself, not again, this can't be happening to me again. Something is going on. And I just had, I had looked up in the past autism spectrum disorder. But every time I took a screener, at the time it was called Asperger's, what I was taking screeners for, every time I took a screener, it said no, that I didn't or that I was barely borderline. But then after this experience with my colleague, I suddenly had this, I guess, epiphany to look up autism in women. And I found Ruby Simone's traits list that had a different set of traits of what autism might present like in AFAB individuals. And so I read through the traits list and it was, there were maybe 50 traits and I would say 46 out of 50 applied to me. And it was an aha moment. And from that moment forward, I started to do research and self-diagnose. I read books about autism and women and I read articles. I took all the screeners I could find for autistic adults. And in the end, I just kind of, I had this entire notebook full of notes and different experiences that I had. So I, I eventually reached out to a therapist that I knew and I asked them if they had an idea of where I could get an evaluation that would also be inclusive of women and adults on the spectrum. 
because evaluations are heavily biased towards child, children and boys. So this therapist said they really didn't have any idea, but <laughs> they would call a friend. So they called a friend and that friend gave them a phone number and they gave that phone number to me. So I called, this, this kind of began the domino effect of me calling multiple psychologists. One psychologist would say, no, I don't specialize in that, but try this one. And that psychologist would say, no, not me, but try this person. And eventually I got to a psychologist. He said, yes, I am comfortable evaluating women and girls and adults for autism spectrum disorder. So I went to see her, it took me a bit and it was expensive because she was so specialized. Of course, it was out of network in terms of insurance. So I had to save up money. I had to use my tax return. <laughs> and I went and saw the specialist. She understood that my work schedule was very jam-packed. So she put the entire session into one mega day which actually ended up working in my favor because by the end of the session, I was so burnt out that I couldn't mask any of my autism traits anymore. If the, if the light was too bright, I, I didn't have coping skills to manage it. I was just like, turn off the light. And, and I just really was able to fully embody myself in a lot of ways. And yeah, so at the end of that appointment, I need to do some parent survey, a parent survey and a friend survey. I would have to take them home. But the psychologist told me that while she still wanted me to do the surveys, she could tell me that she 100% considered me to be autistic. And I started crying because I was so relieved to finally have that answer. Yeah, as I was listening to you share your experience and your story, that's what I wanted to follow up with was what were your emotions after that? Because I know that when we've talked to parents, you know, that's kind of like a grieving process for them because they, they see something that wasn't expected for them, but for someone who's actually experiencing it. So it was a sense of relief for you. It was a sense of relief for me because at that point in my life, I had been misdiagnosed with various conditions, um, fibromyalgia, and other pain conditions because of all the stress I was on coping every day, all the stress that I was under was causing physical manifestations of pain. And all the social things that I was struggling with, people were starting, not, not professionals, but people were starting to put labels on me, maybe of this, maybe of that. Nobody was thinking autism. Um, and all those other labels, they just never seemed to fit, really fit. So when, I found autism and then when that was confirmed, I felt like I really had an understanding of who I was and a response to all the things I'd gone through. It wasn't that I was broken, it was that other people didn't recognize the differences that I embody and that I live with daily. So it was relief, it was joy to have an answer definitely not grief. I didn't grieve a past me because that past me had gone through so many struggles. I rejoiced for the past me because I could give her an answer. Yeah. It sounds like a very liberating experience for you. Yeah. And also I just wanted to mention, I wanted to commend you for being the bigger and better person when you were having that um, miscommunication with your 
your coworker because I feel like when most people have a miscommunication with their coworkers or with their peers or whatever the case is, they don't often reflect on how can I be accountable for what happened in the situation. Um, and I really commend you for doing that. And in the end, it led to you figuring out your diagnosis and figuring out who you are and your uh, sense of person. But I feel like most people don't take that step and self-reflection and realization that you did. So I just wanted to commend you for that because that is, you are leading by example. That is awesome. Thanks. <laughs> um, so you mentioned a couple people in your life, like your mother and even some of your professors who have been supports throughout your journey. Um, in this moment, could you give a shout out to whoever has been the biggest support um, throughout your life or in a very important moment in your life? and just share a moment of gratitude for them. There have been so many people throughout my life here and there in different moments that have been major supports for me. I would say for sure that one big support system that I had, oh, it's so hard to pick, there are so many, but I think I'll go with probably a teacher. Um, when I was, in the 11th grade, I had a Spanish teacher that I had for two years. And I was really deep into masking during that time because I was being heavily bullied at school and really just trying to camouflage and fit in. And this teacher, she never asked me any questions about it. She never was like, hey, I noticed you're being bullied or anything. She was just so supportive, but by actions not by telling me, oh, it doesn't have to be this way or this or that. But then one day I'd gone through a really hard time and I hadn't even said anything to her about it. I had just been in her class. And after class, I went to ask her a question and I was just masking. Nobody could tell that I was having such a tough time that day. And she said to me, you know, it is okay to cry. I don't know how she knew. I don't know how she had taken so much time to just figure me out and see beneath the mask, to want to see beneath it and not just have me be an easy student who was getting along well with everyone in the classroom. And I did cry and she just let me cry. And then she, she the next day, she, she still treated me the same with the same care and support, but she didn't, she didn't turn it into some project. She didn't turn me into a project. She really just cared for me and supported me. That's so wonderful to hear. And I feel like that speaks volumes about how little acts of kindness and acceptance really make a difference. And it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It doesn't have to be something extraordinary. And like you said, a project, I feel like that's what we need to avoid. When we recognize someone's different, someone needs a little bit more support in this area or that area. It's not about making it this big, puzzle that we have to figure out. It's not about finding everything. It's just support them in this moment in any way that you can. So it's just wonderful to hear that you had that at that exact moment and you carry it with you today. You know, that's beautiful to hear that that was years ago and, and you can still think about that moment and really reflect with gratitude. Um, so we actually wanted to shift gears a little bit in our previous episode we had a very important question that we wanted to ask you about race and how intersectionality affects people with autism. 
And although that's a huge conversation to have, and we could probably only get the tip of the iceberg in the 45 minutes that we might have together today, we want to ask about how intersection between race and autism relates to the Black Lives Matter movement through the lens of someone who is autistic. Yes, this summer, last summer, I guess it's almost summer again, maybe. Um, but this summer, I did participate in many Black Lives Matter protests, obviously following as many COVID safety protocols as I could, and it was outdoors. But that was really, I, I was really pushing myself in terms of being autistic and going out into this crowd of people that I don't know, into areas of the city that I've never been, into the circumstances where I don't necessarily know how things are going to turn out, and um, just also the physicalness of it, because I do have hypermobility syndrome. I have, a, I do have a chronic pain condition, and going and being so active and going for these several miles of walks. Um, protests are not always accessible to to people with disabilities, and I really did though myself to go I decided to go because the intersection of race and in this instance blackness and disability in this instance autism is so important to bring to light and to fight for many autistics if they are of color and especially black if we have any moment of taking off the mask or sensory overload in public, we are at risk in a lot of ways. If the police were to be involved, they might racially profile a black individual as being dangerous and then misperceive, misunderstand, misconstrue a meltdown as acts of violence. And instead of taking supportive measures, they might restrain or, you know, there's a lot of different levels of violence that could occur against a black autistic. I have had public meltdowns and there's one in particular that I'm thinking of where I was screaming and crying and pacing. And it was very, very, it was probably very frightening from the outside for someone who didn't know that I was autistic. And I am thankful that the police weren't involved, that it was, it actually happened in a pretty quiet area at a quiet time of day. So no one called the police. I can't imagine what would have happened to me otherwise or where I would be right now, especially because at that time I also didn't even have my autism diagnosis. So it would have been really frightening. Like the possibilities are frightening. And I think there's also, another added layer where there are parents who have children with autism and their autistic child could be having a meltdown at home and that parent might need assistance. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty well known, like we're being discussed quite frequently. Do not call 911 if that happens, if, you're, if your child is of color and autistic because the police might kill your child. And that, has happened. I'm not making it up, you know, and look in the news and see. And these are really serious issues that need to be addressed. Like we can't have disability justice without racial justice. And we can't have racial justice without disability justice. The intersection is there. It is 
it's so vast, like you said, we can really only get to the tip of the iceberg in, in this time frame. but that's why I went to those protests, one of many reasons why I went and why I continue to pursue racial justice. Yeah, I'm really thankful that you're being so transparent and authentic about your experiences um, because your experiences could spark dialogue and conversation on how to better bridge the gaps between law enforcement and policy and training and how can we better support um, the autism community and how can we better educate those who are in law enforcement so they know how to react when they come across a situation like that. Um, and how can we better serve the general public because some people who are not autistic might also experience some of those same traits and we can prevent even more um, I don't want to say damage, but just more heartache within the community in general. If we just take those uh, few steps of acceptance and inclusion and understanding more empathetic training policies. Um, but I wanted to take a little bit different of a turn in this conversation because you share so much on your social media pages. It's, we just want to cover as much as possible. And uh, you have an entire highlight uh, story on your social media dedicated to STEM dance. And <laughs> yeah, it's so, I, I love it. I think it's so cute. So could you share about what stimming is for those who might not understand it and how has it been an, a positive outlet for you in particular? Stimming is short for self-stimulatory behavior. I prefer just using the word stimming because when we say behavior, it makes it sound like it could be something that is good or bad or might need to be corrected or, or there's a lot of connotation to the word behavior. So I tend to just say stimming. And for an autistic, it usually takes a form of repetitive movement, can be big or small, that helps us to regulate and to process sensory and social stimulation as well as to express emotions. So that could be emotions of joy or anger, sadness, happiness. It could just a lot of different ways of getting those emotions that feel that are so strong within us and getting them out. So for me, one of my favorite ways of stimming is through dance. And a lot of people would think, how is that stimming? How is that an autism behavior if you're if you're just dancing? And the thought is that there is a different motivation, intention, and experience when I'm stim dancing versus when I am just dancing. When I'm stim dancing, I am not thinking about the movements at all. I'm just moving, I'm flowing. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of big movements, small movements. And I usually dance to music that helps me to understand the emotion that I'm currently feeling. Sometimes that can be joy and sometimes that could be anger or sadness. Most of the time it's joy. Stem dancing is my favorite joy stem. So I, I just love to do it. And I've been putting it out there in the world through social media as a way of destigmatizing it. Mm -hmm. So I have shown that this is a healthy and happy process that helps autistics to come together to feel more safe, more comfortable, there are definitely other stims besides dancing, and I stim in other ways besides dancing. I tend to tap my chest, or I count on my fingers like this. 
I think some of the stems that are more thought of are like flapping mm -hmm. and twirling. I was definitely a twirler as a young girl. Always, I would just twirl and twirl and twirl and twirl until I couldn't anymore, like literally couldn't twirl anymore. So that's, that's a quick 101 on stimming and it's a beautiful thing. And I really hope that more people, more neurotypical people can see it and not think of it as strange or wrong or something that needs to be stopped. Um, there's a lot of push against autistics to, to suppress and, and repress and hide our stims. The danger in that is that if we can't stim, then we can't necessarily regulate. So then our emotions are gonna come out in other ways because we can't, we can't make emotions just disappear. They come out somehow. And stimming is such a healthy way to process them. So I stop it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you've embraced that and that you've used your power behind social media to harness what this could be and what this could mean for um, breaking down stigma against it because Francesca and I actually just talked last week about how that is what people typically want. Like uh, neurotypical people, when they see it happening in public, they want that to be done at a lower level or maybe just at home. So like you said, whenever, when that happens, then things are going to come out in other ways that are maybe even more stigmatized or more dangerous or you know, could have more harm to everybody involved than if you just let somebody stim and do what they need to do to feel comfortable in the environment around them. So it's important that we think about it that way and that we just go through life with acceptance. And, and we say, just because I act or react in different environments, different than this person, it doesn't mean that that isn't a valid way of expressing emotion or, or joy or whatever it might be. So Thank you for highlighting that on your social media because that I'm sure that that empowers other people to embrace it themselves too and not feel like they have to suppress it um, because that is often what society wants them to do. So hopefully we can continue to work to change that. But on this topic, what we wanna talk about the specific idea of neurodiversity and that specific movement. So this is a word that's being shared more and more, which is awesome. But if you could explain it from your perspective, from your point of view, for someone who's new to this term, neurodiverse, um, how would you share that in your experience? What does it mean to you? Neurodiversity really highlights the fact that there are people who are neurologically different from what is considered the norm. And it actually really underscores the idea that maybe there is no such thing as the norm. I think there's a misconception that we need to create a norm for there to be structure and stability in our society, but actually we can build a society that responds to people's needs. And perhaps that society, which would be more inclusive of those who are neurologically different, that society would be more fruitful and innovative and maybe just more pleasant for everyone. <laughs> so neurodiversity, usually takes a look at people with autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, um, I think anxiety is often included. There's, there's several other things that are included within neurodiversity. And it looks at these different disorders and conditions as differences in, that occur in the brain. And if you actually look at scans, you will see that things light up differently in the brain 
for, and I'm gonna speak for myself, for an autistic as opposed to someone who is neurotypical. Autistics can be just as successful in a workplace as a neurotypical person, successful in school, et cetera, et cetera. If these neurological differences are acknowledged and people are provided for in terms of their needs. And it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating that instead of viewing people as just neurologically different with different needs, we just view people as those who are easy to work with and those who are difficult to work with. And that's just not the reality. Everybody has something that they can provide. If we look at people with dyslexia, I think that they're being used often as translators because people with dyslexia can provide unbiased translations as opposed to people who have been taught how to read and comprehend words in a specific way. So there's just a vast variety of different strengths that everybody has and neurodiversity acknowledges these strengths, these realities that everyone, neurotypical, neurodivergent, we have strengths, we have areas of growth and the world would be better if we accepted it just like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually did not know that about um, those who are diagnosed with dyslexia, but I think I should probably look more into that because that is so fascinating. Um, and I'm, it's really nice to hear your perspective on this because I have a background in psychology. So we learn about a lot of neurological differences um, and the clinical implications of that. And I think it's so important to realize that almost everyone we meet has a neurological difference. And if we just embrace these overarching goals of acceptance and inclusion and understanding of one another, um, I think our society can grow so much from that. And going into that, uh, Megan and I are speech language pathologists in training. We're gonna be graduating very soon, but we have some experience with uh, creating clinical goals and really trying to see clients um, for who they are and assessing their strengths as well as some of the things that they might be struggling with. And we try to take what's called a person-centered or client-centered approach using the client's strengths and their interests to guide our sessions and to really empower them um, through our sessions rather than just focusing on what they can't do because I don't think that's really helpful at all. And I noticed recently you posted about uh, neurodiverse strengths and how we should be seeing those rather than um, looking at the deficits in one another. So could you share a little bit more about your perspective, um, how to find the positives and strengths within each and every one of us? I think that sometimes when people hear like, let's focus on the strengths, let's focus on the positives. Um, when people hear that, they respond with this idea of like, yeah, but that doesn't change the, the negatives about it. We're just going to pretend like those negatives don't exist. And the answer is no, like, but there's really actually just a whole mindset shift that needs to occur. Autism traits, if we look at the actual traits of autism, are largely not negative in any way, very neutral and just, they're just like a truth. They're just a different way of existing. The negative things, perceived negative things like meltdowns, shutdowns, self-injurious stems, uh, many of those negatives are actually reactions to unsupportive environments or they're perceived as negative because other people are seeking to see something in another person and they're not getting what they want. So I think it's very important to just, first off, change the mindset around traits, see what's a trait of, a disorder or a condition 
like autism, and then see what's the symptom of the environment. What is a reaction to environment or to other people's ableism? So I, I definitely view autism and my autism through neutrality of traits and strengths. And I think that that's important for not only autistics as a viewpoint of themselves, but also for those around them to take a moment and really think about how somebody's differences, how my differences might be informing realities that others maybe don't see and perceive. I might be coming up with different ideas. I might be showing different ways of responding to things. And that that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It causes people to have to open their minds and think maybe a little bit larger than they are wanting to at any given time. But in all, opening our minds and seeing things as different, as more, as greater, I think brings us together and helps to make improvements to the world. Yeah, thank you for clarifying what the traits are and how they are truly neutral and why they could be perceived as negative and, and what causes that. That's not something that just happens by an option for for people, it's it's a reaction because the support around them isn't inclusive for their needs. So I think that that's a very important shift that we need to make, that these aren't negative, it's just the environment might induce this kind of negative reaction to, you know, or just stimulation that could be perceived negatively by, by anyone that's not very familiar. Um, going on this same topic, you also have mentioned on your page that neurotypical people might not understand what a no-touch policy is. So for some of our viewers that might be on the spectrum and may struggle to explain themselves in their wishes um, to not be touched, how can you maybe help them or what encouragement can you give them or advice so that they can successfully explain and advocate for themselves to imply this policy from others? So this depends on whether or not an autistic is seeking a no-touch policy with someone that they already know or with strangers or people they don't know very well. With someone that we know, it, I personally believe that it's important to sit down with that person and explain the no-touch policy at a time where there hasn't been a touch that wasn't wanted. So at like a quiet time, at a time where there hasn't been an incident, just randomly like oh hey we're having dinner did you know that I don't like being touched you know I'm explaining it at that time when it's neutral when it feels safe for everybody that the person that we're talking to won't feel defensive because it hasn't happened in that moment they might still feel a little defensive and be like so have you hated every time I've touched you which is a loaded question so that's dangerous to answer but you know if they ask we have to be at least a little honest right um but talking about it through Talking about it with that person through a safe, quiet time. And then from that moment forward, just giving soft reminders and being like, oh, hey, remember, like, can we just wave? And that leads me to this second point that I want to make is, is finding what we are comfortable. Are we 100% no touch ever? Are we more comfortable with high fives? Do we feel very uncomfortable with hugs, but we're okay with like a shoulder touch? taking time for me to explore what touches I am comfortable with 
And then I could even initiate those touches. So that way I have more control over the situation. And this works pretty well with strangers. So if we're with people that we don't know very well, say something happened, some great thing, and um, it might be a moment where we're supposed to hug. Be like, yeah, I'm so glad. Or like, then you can be like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. And just immediately initiate the high five, like right away before the hug even starts. Nobody hugs after a high five. That's really weird. So it will probably stop the, the touching that we don't want if we initiate touching that we're comfortable with first. If we're not comfortable with any touches and that could set off maybe a meltdown for us, I say 100% to say, hey, I don't really like being touched, but I am really happy that this happened or I'm really happy to see you and make sure to follow up. I think with a compliment that that helps people feel more secure. Yes. That means that we're taking care of other people because of our needs. So, you know, we can just be blunt, but if, if we want to keep the situation kind of comfy and, and not awkward, then it is helpful to follow up a, a request to stop touch with a compliment or a reassurance. Yeah, that makes me think immediately of parents that say, you have to give your grandmother a hug before you leave. So that's, <laughs> you know, that's something that we can just keep in mind as, as we all go forward as advocates is having those conversations with parents too, so that they're checking in with their, their children and they're making sure that they know their policy, their own personal policy of how much that they are comfortable with. So just mm-hmm. something to keep in mind, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and I love the idea of letting um, the person who has autism actually initiate those gestures. I think that is such an important takeaway um, after having those conversations with the communication partner, of course, but letting you decide when you're ready to, to hug or to high five or when you want to actually have that barrier broken down physically. So, um, Something I also wanted to talk about uh, are the differentiation between the terms meltdowns and shutdowns uh, because they are used interchangeably, but there is a difference between the two. And I think from my personal experience, it's a little harder to recognize shutdowns because they can look a little different from person to person. So could you describe what each of those terms are for our viewers? Yes, um, meltdowns and shutdowns, I agree that that's often used interchangeably. And I believe that's because their responses, both of them are responses to intense overstimulation, sensory overload, social overload, high stress. When it's come to uh, just to the top of the peak, it will often manifest as either a meltdown or a shutdown in an autistic individual. Before I get exactly into what the differences between each one, one thing I want to say is that there is also a misconception that a single event triggers the meltdown or shutdown. Well, that is possible. It is actually typically very rare that a single event will trigger a full meltdown or a a full shutdown. The reality is that most of the time these meltdowns or shutdowns are a culmination of many big or small things that then come to a head when that one last thing just finally lights the match and sets the meltdown or shutdown into motion. So that's why sometimes it could seem like an autistic person melts down or shuts down when it was just a small thing. Like I didn't realize that, you know, giving them a different color fork would make them have this full meltdown. Well, it probably wasn't just the fork. It was probably multiple things that happened beforehand throughout the week, throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So once we've reached that point, 
um, autistics will meltdown, and that's usually an outward expression of that stress or shutdown, which is more of an inward implosion of the stress. So I think a meltdown is something that we might be more familiar with because it's something visible and people tend to focus more on what they see than what they don't see. So when a meltdown occurs, autistics might throw things, scream, cry. We might, you know, punch things, just lots of different physical manifestations of our overload. Many people might think that um, it needs to be stopped immediately, but repressing a meltdown can actually lead to even greater consequences. So instead of trying to stop a meltdown once it's started, it's best to just monitor and then provide support once it's over, naturally over. A shutdown is different because it's not as visible. It's instead of punching, screaming, crying on the outside, all of those emotions go inward and many autistics can actually go selectively mute if we were, if we are a speaking autistic, we might go selectively mute at the time. It's actually painful to speak in those instances. So asking what's wrong, what's wrong? Are you mad at me? Could make the situation worse. If I speak when I'm selectively mute, it hurts and it can actually trigger a meltdown response from the shutdown. So it could be like a double down. <laughs> and it's important to keep in mind that when an autistic has gone selectively mute or is experiencing a shutdown, that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be alone. It might be a time to ask and provide a way for the autistic to give a non-verbal, non-speaking cue of what they need. So having cards that are already prepared. So do you want to be alone right now? Yes, no, not sure, you know, the different variety of answers. So that way we can be supported in that time. We might be scared if we're left alone or we might really just need a dark room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, those are some things that I didn't even realize the, the distinguishing factors between the two. So I appreciate you being able to explain that and, and help us understand and especially our viewers who might um, not know how to react in certain situations. So I think that that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, earlier, you mentioned a little bit about masking and camouflaging. And we hear about this a lot, especially with girls or women with autism. So as a society, how can we lessen the pressure for girls to want to mask or any autistic and for that matter? Um, how can we make it so that they don't feel like that is something that they have to do, that they have to mask or camouflage to feel more accepted or included? One of the first things to provide a safe space for autistics to be unmasked is to show and not tell. I've had so many people say to me, I hope you know that you can be your true self in front of me and you don't need to mask. And I just look at them and I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, you don't even know what that means. Like, you, like that person doesn't even know how much I'm asking right now. Like, so instead of just saying it, showing it. And, and a lot of autistics, especially older autistics who have been, been forced to mask for so long, 
they're watching in a sense, like the moment one of our autism traits comes more to the surface, how will the other person react, right? So if I do stem and rock back and forth in a stressful setting, I'm not testing people, but it's not like I'm choosing to do the stem at that time, but I am, I am very hyper aware what's going to happen to me how are people going to react are they going to think that I'm strange are they going to tell me to stop and those little instances of us kind of checking to see if we're in a safe space are very important before we know that we really can't unmask for young children I think it's that groundwork when are we saying no when are we saying stop when are we saying don't do that and why are we saying that? Is it for the child? Is it for our own personal comfort? Is it for out of embarrassment of what other people might think? And children are very, very aware and they see and they hear and they understand a lot more than adults always give them credit for. We pick up very quickly when we're doing something that other people don't like, whether or not young children have the control over their bodies to start or stop it. So definitely setting that example through action from the beginning is so wonderful. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like uh, the best, or maybe for some people, the best way to feel comfortable in a situation. Sometimes it just takes time and a level of trust between each other for it to become the most natural. Um, instead of just outwardly saying, oh, you know, you can do this when it hasn't even happened yet. Um, so I think that was really informative for us as well. But going to the topic of you on social media and being so informative and so well-spoken, uh, I'm constantly being inspired by everything you've been sharing with us. How do you see your journey growing over the next few years to come? Because um, I'm really excited to see where you go in the next couple of years with your experiences and with the network that you're building. Um, so a lot of the things that I'm hoping to pursue in the future are more behind the scenes and providing more inclusive practices and events and activities, being a consultant on those things for autism awareness and autism acceptance. That is honestly one of my long-term goals is to help provide new curriculums and new programming that really include neurodiversity and put that topic on the table. I also have a secret passion for wanting to do more public speaking on college campuses to reach out to students who are in college and on the spectrum and to talk to them about my experiences and to also just provide a safe space for them to talk and to bring the topic into college campuses really within the student body. That's a personal dream. <laughs> but of course, I do plan to continue with the Audie tips for, for as long and for as forever and always as people need them or want them through Instagram and to continue also working on destigmatizing stimming through social media. That's so wonderful. We admire you so much for everything that you're doing. And I feel like a lot of times things that happen behind the scenes that aren't being broadcasted are some of the most important and impactful 
in, in endeavors and initiatives that that come to light. So it, it's awesome to hear that you have some things in the works. We'll definitely be looking out for how those things come to light. And it's great to hear that you're pursuing that passion of public speaking and talking to college campuses, because that's obviously a place where there's a missing need for, for that kind of connection. Um, so you mentioned about awareness in autism um, and acceptance. So us being neurotypical and trying to get more neurotypical people invested in this idea and buy into this idea of acceptance and inclusion. Um, what are some ways that you can share with us that we can help them buy into that idea and, and to really practice acceptance for the autism community? I think one way that we can really look at acceptance through a welcoming and just very beautiful lens is to see the different ways in which making accommodations for everyone helps everyone, that it is a universal benefit. Having a quiet room in a workplace, work, having a quiet room in a workplace can really be beneficial for everyone where they can just desensitize in the sense that we regulate and feel good. Having work from home practices and possibilities for school from home, having just these things available for everyone and for, of course, people with disabilities and people who are autistic. I think that that can be seen as, instead of saying like, oh, let's just make this like a one-off thing for this person that's making us do some extra work. Maybe it's time to just kind of like look at our environments and see how everyone benefits. And then we can just move forward from there and make the world more comfortable and more inclusive in general. I think that's a great way to introduce it to people because I do believe that without even meaning to, people have like this feeling of like, oh, I have extra work to do for such and such person. And it's really like, we all have extra work to do for one another. Like everybody's doing extra work for everyone. So how can we just make it so that everyone is in a space that is truly welcoming, comfortable and inclusive to the best of our ability? And how can we make those benefits available and worthwhile <laughs> to everyone. Yeah, and that makes me think about if these places aren't seen as, oh, this is where the autistic person goes to re-regulate, and then everyone is using it, then that's more opportunity to be exposed to different reactions and, and to meltdowns and see what that looks like and see why it might be happening and just reflect. So if you're sharing more spaces together and you're seeing the benefits, then I just feel like that that's amazing. You know, that's, that's something that I would love to see happen. Yes. And just more examples are who doesn't benefit from a visual schedule? I know. And, yeah. and, and where is there a like problem with having clear, precise step-by-step -step directions and how to accomplish tasks and having like a daily schedule and a defined workplace? And, you know, all these things, like, these are things that I think a lot of people want. So having those put in place for everyone can just really help. And honestly, I think it would make a lot of teachers, employers, parents, a lot of people, it, it does make our lives better in the end. Definitely. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up today, um, I really wanted to hit home on the importance of self-advocacy and what are some resources or organizations or people that you follow who can help empower our viewers who might really struggle with that right now? Yeah, there are so many. I'm going to probably focus on the 
the advocates, the self-advocates that are currently working really hard for autism awareness, acceptance, and justice. So a few that I want to point out are JT Rock Knox. I'm pretty sure that's how we say their handle on Instagram. He's a big fighter for um, disability and racial justice. And also I want to shout out the Autistic Life as well as um, Cripple Magazine. I This might be a little bit of a plug because I just started editing for them too, but they are a disability magazine in general on the internet that is working so hard to have people with disabilities speak out about the things that are important to them, whether that's identity or current events, and that encompasses autism and any other disabilities. So these are just a few examples of organizations and different advocates. There's so many, actually, Aspling. There's so many. I could name up a ton, but those are a few shout outs right there. Yeah, I think sometimes all it can take is one story to help really change a person's attitude about what their situation is and what they're going through. Um, And even just your story alone today, I think really could benefit someone who might be watching this right now and help change their path for the better, hopefully, if they're struggling with anything that you have experienced in the past, hopefully they can relate to that. Um, but thank you so much for being on with us. As always, we love hearing about all of your success and everything that you still have left to accomplish. We'll be supporting you all the way through, absolutely, 100%. So thank you, Lauren, Melissa. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to check her out Um, on our original interview, episode 46. And you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at ATNL. And you can check out her website as well, which is instabio.cc slash ATNL. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to Spectrum Sundays. We are your hosts, Miss Central Pennsylvania, Megan Sinisi. And Miss Thousand Islands, Francesca D'Alessandro. Please make sure to subscribe to our series and follow us on social media to stay connected to autism professionals and self-advocates. And just remember, true impact is accomplished through active listening and exploring the world through a variety of perspectives. Join us next week on Spectrum Sundays to help cultivate a community of inclusion, appreciation, and acceptance around autism. 